Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me all right? Are we okay with the sound today? Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Um, we have a special Medical Grand Rounds today. It's the Joseph P. Lynch Memorial Lecture. And um, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Jeff Munson, the Section Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine, who's going to tell us a little bit more about Dr. Lynch and also introduce today's speaker. Good morning, and thanks for coming. Um, so today is the sixth annual Joseph P. Lynch uh, Endowed Lectureship at the Geisel School of Medicine. And before I introduce uh, Dr. O, oh, who is our featured speaker today, um, I want to say a couple words about Joe Lynch, who established this lectureship in sort of honor of his medical education at Dartmouth. Um, we're very grateful for Dr. Lynch uh, and his generosity to make this lectureship possible. Um, Dr. Lynch graduated from Dartmouth Medical School in 1971 and then Harvard Medical School in 1973. He did an internship and residency in internal medicine as well as a fellowship in pulmonary medicine at the University of Michigan where he then was for the next 25 years. He subsequently moved and still is at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, where he currently holds the Holt and Joe Hickman Endowed Chair of Advanced Lung Disease and Lung Transplantation and is the Associate Chief of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine, Allergy and Clinical Immunology. That's a department for you. Uh, Dr. Lynch's areas of clinical interest include sarcoid interstitial lung disease, pulmonary vasculitis, collagen vascular disease, immune-mediated lung disease, as well as idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, lung transplantation, pneumonia, and pulmonary infections. Um, I'm sorry that Dr. J. Lynch can't be here today, but as you can imagine, he has many um, obligations back at home. But we're, again, very grateful for him and his generosity to support this lectureship. Um, now, before I introduce Dr. O, um, I want to just point out that this is actually a very fortuitous uh, event that he's here to talk today, um, because as I think you'll see from his talk, there are many opportunities to improve the care of patients with COPD. And as luck would have it, in the last four months, um, Graham Atkins and Allison Touchette in our section have been developing a comprehensive care model for just these patients in an effort to try to address some of what you're going to hear about today. So I would encourage you, if this talk inspires you or if you um, need assistance in thinking about your patients with COPD to reach out. Um, we are developing a, a, a really actually special program to help. Um, so without further ado, I want to introduce Dr. David O, oh, who joins us from uh, Seattle and made it in just in time to avoid the snow yesterday. Um, he is a graduate of the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine and then went on to do a residency in internal medicine at Case Western before doing a pulmonary and critical care fellowship at the University of Washington. While at the University of Washington, he also um, got his master's in epidemiology and was a senior fellow in health services research and development at the VA of Puget Sound. He has been at the University of Washington ever since and is currently the director of the Health Services Research and Development Center of Innovation for Veteran-Centered and Value-Driven Care at the VA of Puget Sound and a professor of medicine and pharmacy at the University of Washington. Um, he has held numerous positions in various roles in academic and organized medicine. And in addition to that, and his clinical and teaching responsibilities, is a nationally renowned uh, researcher. He has been awarded grants from NIH and the Department of Veterans Affairs, among others, and has dedicated his research career really focusing on the quality and delivery of care for patients with chronic lung disease, in particular those related to tobacco use, COPD, and lung cancer. Um, he uses a variety of research tools to study the process and delivery of healthcare, as well as the impact of pharmaceuticals on pulmonary and non-pulmonary outcomes. 
And one of his primary research interests, which will be the focus of this talk today, is in identifying and intervening upon gaps in the quality of care we provide to patients with COPD. So with that said, please join me in welcoming Dr. Oh. Thank you for having me. It's uh, my first time in New Hampshire, so it's lovely to be here. I do appreciate you coming on this uh, brisk early morning to uh, come hear me uh, ramble on a little bit. Um, so I thought, and I, uh, I actually wonder whether I brought the snow right before, um, right before I came. Uh, we actually had a fair amount of snow. Uh, this is uh, snow outside my, my uh, house. Um, unlike New Hampshire, where everything seems to function just fine in the snow, we lost power, and uh, as a true Seattleite, I was desperate for coffee that morning, and so I used my fireplace for the first time in, in 15 years I lived in this house. Um, and you can see my little small camping stove with a, a little thing. Uh, you know, I've actually forgotten what all these little tools back here are called, but I had stuck them in there about 15 years ago and realized they were still there when I opened the flue. I did open the flue because I realized I should probably not vent carbon monoxide into my house. Um, and then this is what happens in Seattle when it snows. This happened a number of years ago, and actually my office at the time was over, was off on the screen right here, and so you could actually, this is a bus that drove in from the east side of the state and happened to take a wrong turn in, in downtown Seattle and ended up um, dangling a little bit precariously over the I-5 corridor. Um, so, um, so, in any event, we don't drive well in the snow. That's the short answer. Um, these are my disc uh, disclosures. I'm, uh, uh, I am on a data monitoring committee for Novartis uh, on an asthma clinical trial. Um, I also write questions for the ABIM uh, pulmonary disease. Um, I've been asked to tell you that I will not provide any questions, nor will I provide you answers to any questions on the MOC. Um, and then I have my research funding. So, so let's go ahead and start. Um, so. When we think about delivery of quality of care, um, as a general model, we can think about it in the context of Donna Bedian's model that I think many of us are aware of, which is a relationship between uh, structure, process, and outcome. And those are actually a reflection, all three, not in a linear pathway as, as oftentimes thought about, but as a kind of a construct to think about how we can actually then uh, think about quality and how we can actually measure quality. Um, and for this talk, I'll, I'll focus mostly on the fact that quality, I think, depends on uh, kind of getting the diagnosis correct, uh, getting the treatments correct, delivering care when it matters. Um, think a little bit about the healthcare structure uh, that supports delivery of care, um, and to look at uh, appropriate care, and that's uh, escalating care or implementing care when we think it's appropriate to do so, but also de-escalating care or de-implementing care when we think it's appropriate to do so. A lot of the measures that we'll be talking about are uh, NCQA-endorsed uh, CMS or NQF uh, performance measures. And really, I think, ultimately, the goal is to improve outcomes for patients, and that's probably patient, you know, health-related quality of life, exacerbation frequency, things that actually matter to patients. Word is Windows is not genuine. Hmm. <laughs> This is from the University of Washington website, by the way. I mean, the, you know, the, uh, the version of uh, uh, Word, so uh, another home-based company. <laughs> this, is, um, this is probably one of my favorite papers uh, by Peter Lindenauer, who's actually down at Bay State just a few hours from here. 
Um, this is a paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2006. And basically, he looked at the overall kind of delivery of care in the, within the inpatient setting. And what he found was that um, if you looked at all the kind of highly recommended services, which are over here, um, most of the time, people got highly recommended services, but not everyone got all the recommended services. And so if you actually then looked at the number of the percentage recommended, it's about 66% of people got recommended therapy. There were actually a fair number of portions that actually received therapies that were actually explicitly not recommended. Um, but, and then if you had ideal care, which is a combination of, of both um, um, recommended care and not receiving care that you shouldn't receive, only about 33% of patients uh, um, received this ideal care. Um, and so this was, um, this was a very pivotal paper, for, at least for me, because it made me think a little bit more about you know, how we should be thinking about delivery of care as opposed to a single episode of events, but rather a kind of a compilation of, of measures altogether. And so one of the first questions that we want to ask is, do patients who receive COPD care actually have COPD? This is a question that we asked um, a number of years ago. We actually had, uh, we interrogated uh, pulmonary function tests from three centers um, within the VA in my VISN, which is VISN 20. Um, and we identified a cohort of patients who had one or more of the following, uh, which are two or more outpatient visits uh, within two-year period, active treatment uh, for COPD exacerbation, uh, or active treatment for COPD itself. So what we really try to do is not only just rely on diagnoses, but rely on people who are actually, trying to who are actually re actively receiving therapy. We excluded people who had um, other reasons for um, getting PFTs, including lung cancer, nodules, asthma diagnoses. And we found about 5,000 people or so who had uh, uh, you know, COPD, and I put that in quotes. And if you look at those patients, only about 48% uh, of patients, or about 50% of patients, really actually uh, had COPD. Um, and so this suggests at least that you know, we weren't um, doing a very good job, at least, of uh, diagnosing and treating people with the disease. If you looked at the, um, uh, the, the kind of the predictors of airflow obstruction um, or COPD, it, it was really quite, sharp, right, quite remarkable, I thought, that the number of comorbidities that you had actually predicted the probabilities. And so these are, um, um, you know, functionally the risk of having COPD. And so by the time you got to five uh, comorbidities, only about 38% of patients actually had um, uh, COPD. And then looking at conditions that related to, um, um, you know, um, kind of the predictors of COPD, you find that, that things that lead to, that had are associated with at least with deconditioning, um, obesity, heart failure, those have a tendency of actually misclassifying uh, people with COPD. The one thing that is uh, really quite remarkable to me is that the only thing that actually predicted actually having COPD was smoking and being underweight. But everything else was actually associated with, with less risk of actually having COPD. So that included being overweight and obese. Um, we'll talk more about that. Uh, heart failure, depression, diabetes, um, sleep apnea, all things associated with uh, less odds of actually having uh, COPD. And so we went and unpacked the um, issue of uh, obesity a little bit more um, and looked at um, patients who had, um, who were, uh, normal weight, overweight, and uh, kind of morbidly obese. And what we found was that as your weight increased, the, the actual probability of you having disease actually fell. 
to whereas if your BMI was greater than 40, your probability of having uh, airflow obstruction on um, um, uh, by PFTs was only about 38%, 37%. We, um, um, uh, and these were adjusted for a number of uh, other factors, uh, as you can see here. And then we asked the question, so people went and had these PFTs, and then we went and asked the question, do people then appropriately escalate therapy for, um, uh, for COPD once you actually knew that you had COPD, or appropriately de-escalated uh, therapy once you actually had um, 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 no evidence of COPD. And basically what we found is, at least related to BMI, the greater your BMI, you know, the less likely you were actually to appropriately de-escalate. And the higher, your, um, the higher your BMI, the more likely you're actually to inappropriately escalate therapy. And we know that uh, this is work of uh, Laura Feimster, uh, then Ciceri. Um, but we went and looked at um, the relationship between obesity and um, um, uh, reported dyspnea, and we found that as, you know, so irrespective of, um, of FEV1, if you were obese, you actually reported greater dyspnea uh, than people who didn't have it. And as in also um, in terms of St. George's score, which is a reflection of health-related quality of life with higher scores being worse uh, quality of life, the, the higher your uh, weight, the, the more likely you are to report worse quality of life. And that corresponded then to actually receiving more therapy. So patients who were obese uh, were more likely to receive uh, LABA therapies as well as inhaled corticosteroids. So one of the questions was, um, why don't we uh, diagnose and treat appropriately? This is, a, I, I guess, we consider a, a pretty fundamental paper uh, by Min Ju from the University of Illinois, Chicago. She actually put together a focus group of primary care providers and did qualitative analysis and, uh, of, of people really kind of focusing on uh, the use of spirometry uh, in, in the diagnosis of COPD. And she found four general themes uh, that I'll show you details around the, um, some of the questions. But they really kind of revolved around pre-existing diagnoses of COPD, uh, newly suspected uh, COPD, prioritization uh, during a, um, of COPD during a primary care visit, and uh, patient health system barriers uh, to use spirometry. And so, um, so asking why spirometry has such poor uptake in primary care settings, um, if a patient has, and these are, these are all quotes from primary care providers, if a patient has pre-existing diagnosis of COPD, uh, providers actually did not find that it was uh, useful uh, to actually use spirometry. Uh, the quote is, I wouldn't go through the whole, if they had spirometry, if they had PFTs done or not. I f uh, if I feel like it's reasonable history, I'm not sure that I'd go back and reinvent the wheel. So this is kind of um, just saying that it doesn't really matter to them what the spirometric results would be. If someone's on, on disease treatment and things seem to like they're going okay, um, I'm not going to recreate the wheel. Um, they also don't think it's actually necessary for uh, patients with newly diagnosed um, COPD. If my patient is coughing a lot and they have dyspnea and exertion, uh, they've smoked a lot, they wheeze, I almost don't care what the PFT show. I give them Atrovent, Spireva, and they, and they feel uh, a lot better. I'm going to keep them on it, even if the PFT shows an FEV1 of, uh, to VC ratio of 79%, 74, 76. So basically, you know, they're going to use a patient reported outcome, and I can actually understand this, right? If you give a patient a medication and they're saying to you, 
boy, this makes me feel better, um, you might want to keep them on it. Um, except for the fact that they actually may not have the disease. We know that placebo effects occur in about 25%, 30% of patients. Um, um, yeah, let's go on. Um, there's also low prioritization during a uh, primary care visit. Uh, we see a lot of uh, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, all the things I showed you before predicted misclassification, by the way. Uh, if patients really don't have many complaints, I tend to deal with these chronic diseases first rather than COPD. Um, and that's understandable as well, right? I mean, it seems completely reasonable to me that if you have a, if you have a multitude of problems and you have a fixed amount of time that you should be dealing with the things that uh, patients care about and what you care about. Um, patients and health system barriers, uh, some providers, and this isn't a quote, but uh, some providers felt that uh, patients wouldn't follow up. I think there are system, system barriers. There are spirometry, don't typically exist in primary care settings. They typically exist in uh, PFT labs, which are, you know, uh, set aside. You can't typically get them the same day. There's all these kind of system and transportation barriers. Uh, people don't want to take time off work. All reasonable, all reasonable things. But it, the reason why I found this paper so um, interesting and important was that it kind of provided a context of, of why we, we're not doing what we think we should be doing, at least what pulmonologists think we should be doing. So why does this matter, though, uh, in a health system? Um, it's pretty clear to me that frontline providers don't believe that spirometry matters. And my, as I was mentioning earlier, my primary, my, one of my primary mentors was a primary care provider. Um, and it took me probably more than a decade uh, to convince him that spirometry was of some value. Um, and it wasn't really in the sense that it would it improve the management of COPD, but it, but it, just because of the degree of misclassification, it was because he was missing other uh, conditions. Um, so, but there are inferences that the correct diagnosis doesn't matter. Um, spirometry will not affect their behavior, and it may not affect the uh, outcomes for their patients. Um, but patients are oftentimes, as I showed you earlier, are receiving therapies that are actually designed to relieve airflow limitation. But we know that uh, bronchodilators and inhaled corticosteroids don't work uh, for obesity or other kind of chronic complex conditions like heart failure. Um, they have an unbenefit, unfavorable risk-benefit ratio. I would argue that if you're giving a medication that um, uh, can't work, uh, that even if it's a very small risk, uh, that risk-benefit ratio is um, uh, not beneficial. Uh, these medications actually do have uh, side effects. We know that inhaled corticosteroids, and I'll show you the data on this in a moment, have an increased risk and an appreciable one of pneumonia. Um, and there are, um, importantly, and, and this is actually, I think, what mostly influenced my mentor, which was the opportunity costs. So when you're focusing on a disease uh, that doesn't exist, you're missing another disease. You're missing something else that's causing symptoms. Um, yeah, I think it leads to unnecessary medical expenditure, something that um, I think we think more about now. Um, there are COPD visits. Uh, there are medications. Um, oftentimes, these costs will go against a capitated system if you're part of an ACO. Um, but I think most importantly, it's actually not patient-centered. I actually don't think it's appropriate to actually assign a disease um, to a patient that, where none exists. So uh, I would argue that that's not patient-centered care, and that's what I think we're trying to, to get to. So, 
So do we deliver care uh, when it matters? So we know that exacerbation in particular is a time-sensitive condition. This is a paper from uh, the London cohort, uh, Hearst, uh, from 2009. And basically, the spline graph shows that um, there's, a, there's a peak approximately about eight weeks after initial exacerbation when patients are at particular risk for a repeat exacerbation. And then, then, that, re, then that risk kind of falls over time and, and fits the spline curve. We know that COPD exacerbations are common. This is, um, this is um, data from ARC. Um, the, the initial hospitalization is actually pretty expensive, about 8,400. Uh, but that about 20% um, um, uh, uh, of patients have a readmission where it's related to COPD, and that gets uh, more expensive. But even more, 20% of people are actually readmitted altogether within 30 days, and that's even more expensive. And this actually is part of the data that actually uh, drove uh, CMS to the, um, to the recent HRRP penalties for COPD. We also know that uh, there's, a, there's a, now a robust, I mean, 15, 20 years ago, I don't think this evidence exists, but I think it's pretty clear now that there's a robust evidence that suggests that um, uh, medication interventions actually do um, reduce um, future exacerbation risk. And, this is a meta-analysis from uh, Mills in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology. It basically shows that long-acting beta agonists, uh, long-acting uh, uh, muscarinic receptor antagonists, or LAMAs, inhaled corticosteroids, rifamilas, azithromycin, all have been shown to decrease the risk of exacerbations. And, and the question is, so we actually then went and looked to see after exacerbations, um, do patients actually have an, op you know, um, do uh, patients actually receive escalation in therapy. Um, we, we looked at patients who had either an inpatient exacerbation or an outpatient exacerbation um, and looked at six months. So we gave people a long time to actually change some therapy. It looks like about two-thirds of patients actually never had any change in therapy, uh, and about a third of patients um, did. Um, but the... Uh, but the predictors of uh, escalation, appropriate, what I would consider to be appropriate escalation of therapy, um, actually all these predictors were, went in the opposite direction. So if you had, for example, if you were a smoker, uh, you had a 25% less likelihood of um, you know, having therapy escalated, uh, prior COPD exacerbations, uh, number of ipitropium canisters, uh, ipitropium bromide canisters, um, heart failure, depression, diabetes, hypertension, they all go in the negative direction. There's nothing that actually increased the odds of uh, patients actually escalating therapy. Again, these are, uh, common, these are the, the, the common themes that are continuing to emerge as we, as we think about COPD in general. And, and we, th we know that smoking cessation, which is you know, near and dear to my heart, um, um, uh, also actually doesn't um, have a lot of... Um, uh, people don't get uh, NRT, and so this was a, um, a paper looking at it as well. And, and you see that really um, there are no predictors um, that um, uh, increase the odds of receiving nicotine therapy or uh, smoking cessation therapy after um, uh, an exacerbation, except for receiving medications while you're in, in the hospital uh, and a nurse-based counseling at discharge. And so those are the two strongest predictors of receiving uh, smoking cessation therapy after. Um, so it at least suggests to us that, you know, in the inpatient setting that 
you know, this is, this is a probably a pretty effective uh, approach, which is to start it early, start it often, uh, which is a message I like to get out for smoking cessation. It's the only therapy, actually, that's been shown to kind of reduce mortality, uh, reduce exacerbations in the long run, um, and uh, reduce uh, the rate of decline uh, in airflow, uh, airflow decline in COPD. So it's really like the trifecta, right, of uh, therapies. It's also cost effective, um, but yet it still doesn't get done very often. So uh, what I think I show you is there's relatively low adoption of recommended therapies for uh, COPD. Uh, patients with a diagnosis of COPD, there's resistance in primary care settings to use spirometry. Uh, patients are labeled as having disease when they don't have it. They're receiving treatments that they don't need. Among patients with COPD exacerbations, they don't escalate um, treatments that are known to prevent future exacerbations. And we don't provide treatments that are known to improve mortality. So, so why, why is care so poor? So we wanted to look a little bit at the organization. Um, so we actually looked, we, we turned the eyes on our, you know, our eyes on ourselves, um, and we went to look at the VA structure around, um, um, you know, organizational structure for, to support COPD. Um, this was part of a context of a larger study that was designed to really look at the relationship between organizational structure and, uh, and outcomes for patients. Um, we measured things around resource utilization and QI programs. Uh, particularly focusing on hospital, re uh, hospital uh, admission and readmissions for patients with heart failure and COPD. And the way we did this was in 2008, there had been a, 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 a survey sent out by the chief, uh, um, the, what we call the national program director for cardiology, um, to all the chiefs of medicine and all the chiefs of cardiology asking about their, their structures. Uh, it went to 144 facilities. They had a 100% response rate. That's what happens when you're in the VA and then NPD sends it out. It says, you know, send it back. Uh, COPD, uh, we did the same uh, as part of this study. Um, we worked with the NPD um, for uh, pulmonary. We sent it out to 122 facilities. We got a 93% response rate. Pretty good. Uh, not quite as good as the cardiologist. Um, Always an issue for us pulmonologists. Um, and, um, uh, and so the study was really designed uh, to ask questions around the organizational resources that are available for both conditions. Uh, what were the quality improvement processes for both conditions? Um, the CHF uh, survey was actually developed by this uh, group called Query, a CHF query group that existed at the time. Uh, there was no equivalent group for COPD, so we just kind of made it up. <laughs> uh, we actually, um, we didn't quite make it up. We actually used the CHF query as our basis to, so that we could actually have comparable uh, results. Uh, but we did use um, uh, what I consider to be res reasonably high quality evidence, which would be the NQF endorsed and the NCQA uh, um, uh, endorsed uh, measures of uh, quality and performance. And so this is what we found. So Looking at um, the kind of organizational structures that are supported by specialists, so we were actually pretty similar. Um, you know, the number of facilities with um, a cardiologist or pulmonologist were quite high uh, in the 90% range. The number of FTEs, there were a few more cardiologists than, than pulmonologists. Um, but in terms of uh, the clinics that specialized in heart failure versus COPD, uh, there was actually um, a sizable difference. Uh, but the rest were actually uh, quite similar. Um, uh, cardiologists and pulmonologists that focus on the disease were similar. Uh, the, the number of uh, kind of standardized outpatient management, including programs around self-management, uh, education, and exercise programs were all relatively similar. Um, but if you start looking at ones that were focused um, 
uh, primary care, um, there was distinctly more uh, for uh, patients with heart failure. So uh, pharmacists available for uh, heart failure care uh, was greater than for COPD. Home monitoring programs, there was a distinct difference uh, with more home, home monitoring programs available uh, for uh, heart failure, although the, the particular types didn't really vary much by condition. Uh, but routinely sharing disease-related performance measures for heart failure versus COPD, 70% uh, of uh, facilities reported sharing that information versus only 17% for uh, COPD. Now, in VA, for those of us who are uh, VA docs, we know that, that VA loves performance measurements. There are over 500 performance measures in VA, and there are exactly zero for COPD. Um, so uh, I, think it, I think it does kind of illustrate. So I actually wonder about the 17% when they're, when they're actually reporting um, you know, performance measurements. They would have to make it up themselves, which I actually um, am a little bit skeptical of. Um, and then uh, with that in mind, availability of computer, uh, computerized outpatient reminders in primary care uh, for COPD, so corticosteroid treatments, confirmation of airflow limitation, assessment, signs of uh, respiratory failure, all between, you know, uh, 16 and 34 percent versus the use of ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, beta blockers and ejection fraction measurement, all eh, not great, actually, but, but significantly better. And then uh, among uh, patients admitted to hospital, what are the kind of continue? You need to log on using account administrator. How do I get rid of that? Oh, here. Okay. Um, hopefully this talk will continue to go on. <laughs> um, we see that there are actually pretty big differences between uh, both heart failure and COPD. The ones that actually are pretty good are um, confirmation of room air saturation of 88% or greater, um, and then uh, assessment of current smoking status. Um, I would argue that those are actually not COPD-specific ones, but those are kind of JACO measures, and, uh, and so they're going to be adopted more than, um, than others. But um, anyway, I think this is illustrative of uh, differences in, in organizational structure. It leads me to think that I've always called COPD the Rodney Dangerfield of uh, chronic disease. Um, you know, it's... Um, it's, it's odd because it's a second leading cause of uh, disability adjusted life year. Uh, it's a leading cause of hospital re uh, admission and readmission. It's actually tied within VA. Um, but there is limited organizational interest. As I was actually preparing this talk, one of my friends said to me, well, you know, no one's going to know. You know, you're going to cohort out uh, people who actually know who Rodney Dangerfield is. And so I tried to come up with someone else, and I came up with Emo Phillips um, in this quote that uh, nobody knows that I'm famous. And I don't know if that's actually better or not, but I, but I tried to find something different. Um, so, but I do think the findings provide insight into the use of uh, the lack of use of spirometry in primary care settings and the lack of appropriate escalation of treatments um, overall. Uh, so now what? Um, this is sometimes how I feel. This is actually my son in Hawaii, like in this beautiful place, and he's all pouty. Um, it's actually my it's actually my favorite picture of uh, my younger son. Um, um, but so this is sometimes how I feel, right? Like you know, what am I going to do? Right, so but um, so we have, I think we should think a little bit about reorganization of healthcare delivery. Um, really thinking about you know, the VA has gone through a lot of efforts. We've gone through this implementation process around creating patient-centered medical homes. We've been restructuring uh, care uh, into teams around the patient with primary care providers, pharmacies, social work, uh, mental health providers, uh, nurse care managers, all within the primary care settings. I think it's a great thing. Um, at the same time, we've actually pushed on greater responsibilities onto primary care. Um, you know, care is supposed to be directed now and coordinated through the patient-centered medical home. 
And they really, and, I, and this is you know, a reflection of us. I think we've actually set unachievable goals um, to achieve quality across all domains, right? And, we, and we've asked primary care to do this. Um, I just don't think it's realistic. So, um, and, then, and then we hold out measurement and we hold payments uh, that occur actually at the health system level. Um, and, um, and, and it tries to drive, I guess, some, uh, some concept of uh, quality and efficiency. Um, but then it makes me wonder, you know, my panel size, so the average panel size of a full-time FTE uh, provider in, uh, in primary care is about 1,200 patients in the VA. Uh, for my panel size as a pulmonologist um, is tiny. I have about 100 panel sizes. Now, I'm an academic pulmonologist, so I'm smaller. But even my, even my full-time clinical colleagues um, have uh, panel sizes that are a mere fraction of that. Um, and so it makes me wonder a little bit about what the role of specialty medicine is uh, within integrated healthcare settings that I think are becoming more, more common. Uh, there's traditional specialty medicine, um, you know, where, you know, we, we could be viewed as the catcher. We're just kind of waiting for the ball to arrive. The patient is going to come to us. Um, and sometimes that works, as it did, you know, the Seattle Seahawks and the Green Bay Packers. Uh, but sometimes it doesn't, right? And this is actually the Pats and the, uh, and the Seahawks um, in, the, in the Super Bowl, a very infamous interception. Um, but receptions don't always work as, as, as hoped. And when I, when I actually I did preview this in Seattle and it got booed. <laughs> uh, I was curious what, what kind of reception we receive here in New England. Um, so, but I, but I thought, we, well, we should probably think about, you know, actually, how do we think about access? How do we think about services delivered? And so this is what we're, we're dealing with in the VA. So this is Vision 20. This is where I, where I live, up in Seattle, uh, in the corner up there. Uh, this is Oregon and Idaho, which is all part of Vision 20. We actually excluded Alaska, which is actually part of our Vision as well. And every one of these dots represents either a, a, a CBOC, the circles, or a medical center in the squares. And, and, so, and these are what we call a service area. So all the green outline is, is the 40-mile service area around uh, a, a facility. And so we can actually start thinking about where is care actually available. Um, so uh, VA providers, um, you know, um, you can think about it in a spatial kind of uh, um, um, you know, perspective of, I live 15 miles from a CVOC, but the closest pulmonologist is a 50-mile drive. Uh, you can also think about uh, temporal um, access, which is I live five miles from a VAMC uh, with pulmonary care, but it, I have to wait three months. Um, I'll show you the real data in a second. And so um, you can predict temporal access um, Use, uh, and this is actually real data for the chest cleaning. So we went back and looked, and we kind of plotted um, uh, results um, um, of, of the wait time. So 75% of patients would be seen within this time frame, which is, which is pretty good, within obviously around 19 days. Um, and, and you can actually plot to see which direction you're heading. If it's going up, you could be thinking about how to deploy more resources. If it's coming down, you're probably thinking we're probably OK in terms of um, getting people in. And this is a process using quantile regression, um, which is one of the what uh, one of our biostatisticians did for us, and I don't really understand, so don't ask me a lot of questions about quantile regression. Um, but we did this for um, uh, a bunch of different um, settings. So this is primary care access in in our vision, and um, and so you can see uh, where there's a combination of both either uh, temporal access and um, 
um, geographic access in primary care. Uh, this over here, the, the, the green spots are actually the densities of where patients uh, reside. And so you can actually then overlay densities of patients on top of where you have primary care access. And so everyone that has a purple view around it is actually, um, you either meet the temporal axis or the, the spatial axis. Everyone that doesn't have uh, any purple around it means that we're actually not meeting the, uh, the spatial or the uh, temporal axis. And so, um, so we're doing okay uh, for primary care. I think we actually, I think you can see actually, we do better for mental health services. And so we've co-located mental health services within, um, within primary care settings. Um, and so I think we're doing better uh, in terms of access there. Uh, but if you look at pulmonary access, it's actually markedly less. Um, you know, there's, no, there's no penetration out here. This is Boise. Uh, we don't actually have a, um, a pulmonologist any longer in Walla Walla. And so the availability of pulmonary uh, care in, in our visit is distinctly less than the other two uh, services. So... Um, so then it makes me wonder a little bit about kind of proactive engagement and, um, and, and thinking about how I, you know, uh, I as a pulmonologist uh, have some responsibility to the, to the care of all these people who, who live in, in my vision uh, who have pulmonary disease. And so we've been thinking about using a population-based approach um, to, uh, to deliver care, um, using specialists um, really to think about um, um, delivering care. And so um, what we've done is we've uh, conceptualized, and I'll show you some of the examples of, of our work right now. Um, one of the things I want to point out is we use experimental designs um, in all our work uh, in some variety just to improve the internal validity. And I think that's really important for learning health systems that are trying to actually understand, you know, what quality initiatives are going on and whether or not uh, they actually work or not. Um, and so uh, this is a study I was going to tell you a little bit about de-implementation de of inhaled, uh, inhaled steroids uh, to improve care and safety of patients with COPD or the DISCUSS COPD trial. Um, partnering with uh, a team in Bedford, when Renda Wiener, who actually trained here, um, and, and as well as our Puget Sound team. So we know that COPD guidelines, um, the 2016 gold uh, guidelines in particular, um, actually limit the use of uh, inhaled corticosteroids. They should be uh, limited to patients with severe, very severe airflow obstruction as determined by spirometry, patients with frequent exacerbations. We should not provide them to patients with mild to moderate airflow obstruction, um, no obstruction, i.e. no COPD. Um, um, they have a limited benefit in comparison to other agents, um, uh, but have real risks, including pneumonia, oropharyngeal candidiasis, skin bruising, um, in 2017, gold actually removed the spirometry thresholds, and, we're, we're, uh, and we've, we've thought about that a little bit. But with, this is, so this is a broader issue within VA. So we actually went and interrogated all the VA uh, data looking for patients who, uh, who are on inhaled corticosteroids but who may be receiving it inappropriately. So um, we know that about 50% of patients actually only go on to get spirometry. Um, we excluded indications such as asthma or frequent exacerbations. And you see that, um, in, and this is very reminiscent of the Dartmouth atlases, right, where there's a lot of heterogeneity in care. Um, in some facilities, about 25% of inhaled corticosteroids might be inappropriately prescribed, but up to 90-some-odd uh, percent in other facilities might be prescribing inhaled corticosteroids inappropriately. And this is kind of a heat map of uh, that kind of distribution. And, and Washington State, where I live, uh, doesn't look very good. 
Um, but and the reason why this is important is that there are actually alternate approaches that are available uh, that are safer. And we, in the DA implementation side of the, of the theory, we call this substitution. So we don't just want to take things away. We, we think it's conceptually easier from a behavioral economics perspective to actually substitute something. And this is uh, data recently from um, um, uh, Visha. Um, uh, Wajika, Wajika, um, who's... Um, who's now the editor of the, of the Blue Journal, which is our, which is our journal. But this was uh, published in uh, the New England Journal, and it's called The Flame Trial. And basically, they compared um, a Lama Lava to a, a, a Lava ICS, and basically found that the risk of uh, COPD exacerbations was actually significantly less with a Lama Lava combination than a Lava ICS combination. Um, and, and consistent with now what is 10 to 12 years worth of good randomized control evidence, um, the incidence of pneumonia was uh, distinctly less, uh, probably about uh, you know 30 to 40 percent less in the um, uh, Lava Lama uh, combination. This is work from Sammy Suisa in, uh, in Canada, and he used the Ontario database and looked at people who had inhaled corticosteroids withdrawn and then looked at the risk of pneumonia over time, and he found that once you remove this, the risk of inhaled corticosteroids, that the risk of pneumonia actually fell, and it fell uh, appreciably um, over, these are days here, so by 90 days you started to actually reach you know, a flattening of the curve, but, but a distinct uh, decrease in the, in the risk of pneumonia once you withdraw uh, inhaled corticosteroids. So we've been. Um, so we were actually focusing a little bit on some um, um, uh, provider knowledge around the use of inhaled corticosteroids. Um, this and this is what they said. Um, I think it's fair to say I have no idea what the guidelines say. Um, the, this one's also a little bit garbled and it's a little bit long. Uh, I've gone. I've got patients on drugs that I, I wouldn't have them on, but they insist it works. So unless it's hazard, unless it's a hazard to patients, oral inhaled. Oral inhaled corticosteroids are pretty benign. Uh, they're obviously not cheap necessarily. You can see the internal conflict that this person has, right? I mean, it's like <laughs> I know I shouldn't be doing it, but I'm doing it. I, I, you know, oh, uh, in the end, it's like okay, I'm, I'm going to continue to continue to leave them on it. Um, there's um, uh, providers. Uh, ask, we asked them about discontinuing inhaled corticosteroids and and, and, and pre-existing substitutions. Um, they say, I don't know. Uh, I can't really tell you that one. Uh, they are probably they are they probably are, uh, but if they come to me and they have no adverse events on them and um, already on it, I may just leave it. Um, I think that's a lot of how we we approach medicine. Actually, I think there's just better evidence now for starting people, uh, for example, on teotropium instead of inhaled corticosteroids for moderate COPD. That's what I meant. It's, it's so um, at least you know in the past. Um, the organizational structure actually drove primary care to use inhaled corticosteroids because if you wanted to order teotropium, you actually had to get a pulmonary consult. And why would you do that if you could just order something else? Um, and so, so it makes all, this all makes sense to me, um, in, at least in the context of our uh, environment. So again, issues, um, primary care and organizational efforts really don't focus on COP care. There are really too many tasks. Um, and I think the risk of burnout is high. Um, how do you actually decrease inappropriate medication use? Um, and can you use specialists to, to lead population management within primary care? Uh, we're very sensitive about that because um, we want to actually kind of augment the effect of primary care. We actually don't want to intrude. Um, we want to attempt to unload some of the responsibilities from primary care. If we think it's important as, as pulmonologists or specialists, we should take some ownership of it. 
Um, um, at least that's my, my belief structure. And so uh, these are actually the specific aims. The primary, of course, aim is to decrease the use of low-value inhaled corticosteroids among patients with mild to moderate COPD. Uh, secondary aims are actually really important to us as well, which include the acceptability of the intervention to PCP and veterans, um, the rates of pneumonia, COPD exacerbation mortality, uh, budget impact on the implementation costs. We want to know how much it costs. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we really want to uh, maximize internal validity uh, to help the learning health system. So this is actually a cluster randomized trial um, and uh, where uh, the intervention is actually the uh, primary care provider. And so, um, so we've gone and we've tried to identify uh, all the patients within uh, Puget Sound and uh, their community-based outpatient clinics, as well as those in Bedford. We found about uh, 8,500 patients. Uh, about 58% of them actually don't have PFTs, and we decided not to take on that beast of getting PFTs for everyone. But that eliminated about 58% of the, of the group off the top of our heads. So we had uh, um, about 3,500 patients who had uh, PFTs. Uh, of, of those of that population, about 1,300 were on inhaled corticosteroids. We went and we tried to remove all the indications for inhaled corticosteroids, so diagnosis of asthma and you know, ICDNI codes, uh, evidence of exacerbations, uh, patients with severe airflow limitation were all kind of removed. removed. And that led us to about 54% of, uh, of 792 patients is what we think we're going to intervene upon. This is the intervention design. So we identified these patients. Uh, a team of pulmonologists actually sits and actually abstracts charts. And so we sit in, for an hour. We review up to six records at a t uh, during that hour. We look at all the primary care notes. We look at PFT records. We look at imaging um, to really to try to find you know, what we can uh, deliver. Um, we have help with primary care, uh, our colleagues. Uh, we as pulmonologists develop and, and provide recommended care. And then we do two things. Either for the providers that are in the usual care arm, uh, you know, care happens as usual. For the intervention arm, we actually write a note, kind of providing justification of why we want to de-escalate inhaled corticosteroids, or if we do. Um, and then, to, in, then um, for anything that we consider a recommendation, we actually try to unload uh, the primary care providers by actually completing the orders on their behalf. And uh, in that context, we, we leave it to the primary care provider to actually go through an intellectual exercise about whether or not uh, you, they think that we might be on the right track with this particular patient. But we leave the final decision up to them. And, and that's fine with us. And so we actually want to know whether or not this is effective or not. Uh, we try to facilitate communication through our EHR, uh, but we're also available by email, phone, and, and e-consults. Um, and then we're looking at outcomes um, down the road. Um, this is an example of the note. Uh, this is a hypothetical patient. Uh, there's no patient by the name of ZZ Test. Um, um, there's, um, and so we kind of tell them who we are. We actually provide the recommendation. So in this case, we recommended discontinuing Simbacort, which is probably the most commonly inhaled medication we're discontinuing. Uh, and then um, we want them to initiate Oladaterol, which is our long-acting uh, beta agonist, uh, uh, initiate Mometazone at one puff uh, for one month and discontinue off. This is based on uh, the WISDOM trial, where uh, if you withdrew inhaled corticosteroids too rapidly, you might exacerbate someone's COPD. So we're, we're trying to be cautious. And, um, um, and then we provide an evidence base uh, for that as well. Um, 
And so we thought some of the patterns are actually relatively easy. So we thought you know, we would come when we find people with no respiratory symptoms and PFTs are normal, and that's what we found some of them. We found uh, people who had respiratory symptoms, but really PFTs that were mild to moderate. And so for those, I think we're, those are pretty easy recommendations too. We either substitute or we ask them to, to de-escalate the inhaled corticosteroid. Um, there are no respiratory symptoms. PFTs are um, demonstrate no airflow obstruction, but have other etiologies, interstitial lung disease, that kind of stuff, where inhaled corticosteroids probably don't work. Um, some symptoms, PFTs are normal. Uh, they may have mild to moderate airflow obstruction, uh, but PFTs uh, demonstrate no um, uh, uh, airflow obstruction. Those are all uh, diff different range of, of things that we feel pretty comfortable recommending de-escalation. Uh, but then there are a lot that are actually uh, harder as well. Um, there are some suggestion of asthma, and this is most probably commonly in the progress in the problem list that gets kind of carried forward. Um, and so you go and you look for symptoms of asthma, atopy, you know, allergic rhinitis symptoms, and the like. Uh, but uh, but it's but it's hard to find, and so you're kind of left with this idea of like, are you really going to recommend de-escalating a primary treatment for someone who might actually have asthma? Um, there are some times that we actually find symptoms that are suggestive of asthma, uh, but there's no documentation of asthma in, in the record. Uh, some people actually meet the definition of uh, asthma COPD overlap. And these were actually much more circumspect. We're like, well, we're not certain whether or not this person has asthma. You may want to actually ask these particular questions, and we lay out the questions that they want to ask. Um, um, we also, um, another common thing that we're running into is when we reread all the PFTs that were done, and sometimes we disagree, we disagree with our colleagues. And, and that puts us in a little bit of an awkward position. Like, you know, my senior colleague has said this person has airflow obstruction, but I actually don't think they have airflow obstruction. Um, that, that happens uh, more often than I like. Um, the most common place we've run into uh, disagreement is in the de definition of severity. Some people use the prebronchodilator. FEV1, we use the post-bronchodilator FEV1, and so there's some disagreement around that. Um, and, then, and then there are people who actually have COPD and have um, uh, exacerbations, um, but, they're, but sometimes they're outpatient exacerbations uh, where you could create some justification. They're not frequent exacerbators. Um, they've either had one inpatient or two outpatient exacerbations that meet the frequent exacerbator, but they happened a long time ago, more than a year out. Uh, and there's evidence to suggest that you can actually safely withdraw them in that context. Um, this actually happens fairly often, too, which is that they're treated for exacerbation, but we're actually not sure that they actually have COPD. Um, so it's just, um, you know, it just shows that uh, what we think was going to be easy in some cases actually turns out to be uh, quite challenging. Um, there are other issues that are challenging. Um, you know, we read all the primary care notes, right? And we read all the pulmonologist notes. We write a bunch of different notes. There's a lot of copying and pasting, and uh, there's not a lot of new information that's kind of being carried forward um, um, in the medical record. Um, there's a lot of wrong information that's actually being, being continued to be propagated through. Um, uh, smoking intensity is impossible to find in, in medical records, and, um, and we find these incidental findings, and it's not uncommon that there was a pulmonary nodule that was supposed to be followed up within a certain time interval and we're well outside that time interval. And so we're actually making, we have to make decisions about whether or not we're going to make recommendations on that. Um, so in any event, I'm going to wrap up. Um, so overall, I think um, COPD care could use some emphasis. Um, I think healthcare systems are realigning to new payment models, um, and that, that might encourage us to think more uh, systematically about uh, healthcare delivery. Um, 
I think models are less motivated uh, by revenue from a fee-for-service uh, perspective. Uh, don't get me wrong, I think they're still completely motivated by revenue, uh, but those, mo those models are uh, capitated. Uh, they're going to be based on quality and outcomes, and they're associated with penalties. Um, health systems will be interested in how to engage their assets uh, more, I think, uh, because of this paradigm shift. Um, in, in that model, uh, we as providers are assets. Uh, and, and, the, and systems I do think there is a uh, greater need uh, for specialty care to think outside uh, our usual paradigm and to think about how we um, uh, really help drive quality of care for, uh, for a system of care. And um, uh, we can use information systems to predict and plan uh, for the care that's needed. And I really do think that um, learning healthcare systems should not be afraid of using experimental designs uh, to actually help uh, improve uh, internal validity uh, and understand what's going on in their own health systems. Uh, as always, it takes a village, and, and none of this work is really mine, but it's, uh, but it's all work of many, many uh, individuals um, who, I, who um, uh, share the burden. And, um, and um, I'm actually <laughs> well, happy to take questions and thanks. So. You say something about the latest thinking about cost effectiveness and properness of doing sort of office space for entries or speaking to your point about uh, it being expensive but access being limited. What's the, what's the current thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think. Actually, spirometry itself should not be that expensive anymore. An office spirometer is probably about twelve hundred bucks, um, and um, and the and, and the use of it has almost no disposable costs associated with it. Um, the The issue is that it's they're inconvenient. Patients don't know how to use it. It's the the issue around training staff to use it on a frequent enough basis. I think if we kind of design systems to just to put it into the workflow. Uh, that it would it would probably work better along that way, um, you know. I'm not I'm not one who's advocating for the use of spirometry, for example, for screening for COPD. I don't I actually don't think that's that's effective, and I don't think that works. Um, but I do think in this context, right? I mean, you're asking patients to spend if they have no insurance, they're spending three hundred dollars for triple therapy, and um, and it's it's almost free to us, um, you know, to use a spirometer uh, if we if we you know leave it in the clinic where I think it should be. Um, you know, we can keep the, the body box and, and, and all the other kind of fancy PFT equipment in the PFT lab. But I think for simple spirometry, I think it should probably be available in, in most primary care settings. Uh, there have been a number of efforts that have actually tried to, to do this. Um, there's the National Health and Lung Education Program uh, that was started by Tom Petty um, probably 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, they trained office staff on how to use spirometry. They taught office staff how to bill for spirometry. And then they came back about six months later to see how it was going, and, and there's about six months worth of dust on top of the, the covers of the spirometer. It's just I don't understand. Uh, it's it's not um, you know it's not like an EKG where you know you can slap it on and, and just kind of run. There's actually you know technique to it and that kind of stuff. And and there's um, and so I, I I actually do think it's harder um, than than a lot of tests, but um, but I would advocate for it obviously. Could you comment on the the impact of the studies about the dangers of unopposed lava um, treatment? Sure. So, so in COPD, uh, there is no evidence that lavas are actually harmful, and so 
um, that are that are by themselves. Uh, that let, that literature came from uh, the asthma literature, and it's actually one reason why it's so important to differentiate asthma from COPD. Uh, clearly, asthma's you know frontline first line therapy is an inhaled corticosteroid. Uh, for COPD, the frontline therapy is probably a LAMA or a LAVA. Um, but, uh, and, and actually, the 2017 gold guidelines even started pulling back from the use of inhaled corticosteroids in that, in that setting. So there, I don't think there's any issue. Uh, it's been looked at now in thousands of patients, tens of thousands of patients, in terms of uh, risk of uh, uh, cardiovascular events, as well as mortality for LAVAs, uh, and there's no signal. Yeah? Given that um, LAVA and LAVA combination relatively new and hence expensive. Um, mm -hmm. How do you think we're going to get around the uh, practice of insurance companies thinking they can practice medicine? Yeah, um, I, I think that's a great question. I think the, um, um, uh, at least, you know, I'm, an, I'm a VA doc, so I have a hard time, you know, <laughs> um, um, you know, projecting outward. Um, I think the if I were, if I were, you know, advocating, I mean, the first thing I would probably advocate if I was going to have two agents is for them to be on the same, to be on a single device. Um, I think if I, if they, if an insurance company prohibited that, I still think it's probably more beneficial to have uh, two separate devices than than a single device that had a, an inhaled corticosteroids and a lava in it. Honestly, um, they're actually probably going to come out with triple therapy in a single can at some point in time. And that's going to be a nightmare to de-implement. But um, um, but you know, um, um, I think it's just a matter of you know societies. There is a role for the American Thoracic Society in this. There is a role for the ACCP in this. There is a role for other respiratory societies to actually drive the point home that uh, insurance companies should not be recommending things that would actually increase the risk of harm. And the other thing I would say is, you know, pneumonia is expensive to treat, and so um, that might be the best argument of all. So, I have sort of a related sure. question. Um, so the VA is a wonderful system, as a closed system, to do this kind of work, and. Um, I'm wondering if you can think about how you might extrapolate that to, to a system where even if we're in a, uh, so we have ACO relationships, mm -hmm. it's multiple. So yeah. different ACOs, different insurance, some non-insured, right. to give specific advice about management when you don't have this closed system with a specific formula. Yeah, I mean, that is one of, clearly one of the benefits of uh, a closed system is that, you know, it's a closed system. That said, you know, uh, about 50% of veterans actually receive care outside the system um, through the Choice Act or through other, through other, uh, through Medicare, uh, through Medicare beneficiary. Um, what would be my advice? I, I, I think the uh, advice would be uh, really kind of uh, focusing on, um, well, I mean, in that case, you're really thinking about the contract that you're actually signing and what kind of structure actually exists within the contract to, um, to improve delivery of care. Um, in the capitated models um, where, the, where you're responsible for the costs, I mean, it, it seems like the use of spirometry would actually decrease your overall use of, of uh, pharmacies that you're, pharmaceuticals that you're actually now responsible for. And so, um, um, the one, the one thing that we did, and some of this work was done actually prior to this integrated health system around PFTs being more widely available. Uh, we actually went and um, you know, identified all the patients through ICD-9 codes um, and, and then interrogated pulmonary function machines to actually see whether or not um, you know, individually, so we went to the machine, actually you know, downloaded the list of patients and then compared the two and did the overlap. Um, 
and, and that's actually, you know, it takes a little bit of kind of boots on the ground work, but it's actually probably beneficial from a health system perspective if that's what you want to do. Um, this is all in priorities of all the other thousand things that, you know, healthcare systems are now being asked to do. And so it has to be put in that, that set of priorities. But, um, but if you don't pay any attention to it, it will never get any attention. Sure. Here's a paradox I want to throw at you. It seems that it would, you, you're sort of asking for primary care people to evaluate p patients who come to you, particularly in the VA who have been on and they have a steroid for so long. And then you do that, but you don't, you really don't have objective, uh, an objective, a way to get objective findings. So, do you understand what I'm saying? So if someone comes to me and I, and I say, you know, he's been on this, does he really need it? And what, I don't know, I'm, I may get, hey, you know, doc, I've been on that, and you stopped it and I feel rotten, or on and on. I, I don't, without having the objective framework, is, isn't this something that might be better done in a, in a planned uh, uh, study by the VA or uh, to assess how you can do that in the primary care center? Yeah, so I mean, um, I'll emphasize that this is actually in primary care. Uh, in mind. So, um, communicate directly through the e-consult mechanism to deliver the intervention to the primary care provider. We're f we fully acknowledge that we actually don't know these patients. We do chart abstraction. We look for documented evidence of symptoms, documented evidence of airflow obstruction, um, anything that might lend us to leaving people on inhaled corticosteroids, we're actually very judicious about looking for. Um, in the end, we're also opening that, open to the fact that we actually don't know these patients personally, but sometimes we do, uh, but most of the time we actually don't, and, um, and that we, we're leaving it somewhat to the judgment of primary care. On the other hand, we don't want to just kind of dictate to primary care and say, we think you should stop this person's inhalocorticosteroid. We want to actually unload the responsibility, so that's why we actually enter the orders on their behalf. So if they read our note, so the other thing I didn't mention is that we time these, vi these notes so a patient is showing up within a couple days of this note. And so that, so when the patient comes, it, it gives the primary care provider an opportunity to actually talk with their patient about whether or not any of, you know, any of these symptoms are actually there or what's the likelihood that they actually have mild to moderate disease. Um, we really do try to maintain uh, primary care autonomy as much as we, as much as we can. I wonder, is the judgment of the primary care provider an adequate resource? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I have, I have to assume, you know, the vast majority of care for COPD actually occurs within primary care settings. Um, I, you have to rely on, you have to rely on them, I think. Um, and this is actually, this is why we do a randomized trial, right, is to actually test, that's like one of the, you know, explanations if it's a failed trial um, or if we're actually causing harm, uh, which we're concerned about measuring, um, that maybe, maybe that's not a reliable model and we have to do something else. But that's why we do it in this way, so that we can actually have a better understanding of the inferences. Yeah. So I think given that hour, um, we'll invite people to come up if you'll take sure. a few minutes. So yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you all.